Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanyap. That's Creole for something extra. You might not think you have much in common with Henry David Thoreau, an American naturalist, author, and philosopher from the 1800s. Thoreau is best known for his book Walden, a reflection upon his two years living in the woods around Walden Pond in Concord, Massachusetts. Suddenly his experience as the original social distancer seems quite relevant. The famous New Englander had a poignant appreciation for nature, something many of us rediscovered this year as the world closed in and we went outside to smell the flowers and to admire the wildlife that reclaim parts of our towns and cities as human traffic decreased. Author David Gessner is inspired by Thoreau in Gessner's latest book, Quiet Desperation, Savage Delight, Sheltering with Thoreau in the Age of Crisis. He finds insight about how to live through a pandemic from the man who iconically self-isolated in a hut in the woods. Gessner is the author of 12 books and a professor at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington. And he joins me now. Welcome, David. Thanks, Callie. It's great to be back. I'm glad to have you. So let's put this on the table. Lots of people have read Thoreau many times over and think about it deeply. And you, of course, would be a person like that. This is a reread for you that inspired this latest book. But let's begin by your telling me who you think Thoreau is. So for people who may not know him, but who is he to you? Well, he's to me a contradictory figure, a person known for retreating and isolating, as you said, but a person who was politically involved in ways that aren't normally thought of when when people write about him. He's also funny in his own weird way and ornery. And his book could be subtitled How to Live, right? (laughs) But with a caveat in that Thoreau says, only wear the clothes of mine that fit. Don't force yourself into this. So for me, one of the kind of ironies of Thoreau, it's a little like the deadheads with the Grateful Dead. Um, you know, they, people read him and there's this original, unique character whose lesson is be yourself. And the lesson often they take away is be Thoreau. Mm. So there, there are Thoreau heads out there. So I think for me, this was a reconsideration and a deeper look at him. And particularly, as you said, a deeper look at a time when many of us were looking inward, we're looking in our backyards, we're thinking about the world. Um, and all those things mixed together in a way that made him really relevant for me this year. So originally you weren't thinking about writing a book about Thoreau, it just came to you. You were inspired in a way by looking at some of the similarities of your own lives. So let's take a listen to the beginning of the book in which we can get a sense of how Thoreau has been a part of your life for longer than just now. Great. This is how the book starts. 16 years ago, when our daughter was just a baby, My wife and I took her on a trip to Walden Pond. As we approached the place where Henry David Thoreau's cabin once stood, with my daughter riding up on my shoulders, I said to her, that's where the man lived who ruined your father's life. Ruined in a mostly good way, I meant. I discovered Walden when I was 16 and never quite recovered. I began to question the values of the system I found myself in. The life that men praise and call successful is but one kind, Thoreau wrote, and I hollered, amen. In this way, Thoreau was like a more profound, less musical version of getting stoned and listening to Pink Floyd, but the effect was more lasting. 
I began to keep a journal in high school and I keep one to this day. After college, the sentences from Thoreau's book were still rippling outward through my life, affecting the choices I made. To hell with law school or any normal career, I would become a writer. I would value solitude and I would move to my very own Walden. That's my guest, David Gessner. He needs reading from his book, Quiet Desperation, Savage Delight, Sheltering with Thoreau in the Age of Crisis. In fact, you did build your own little cabin, um, <laughs> and it got washed away by a hurricane, a part of the rediscovering of Thoreau in the moment of the pandemic and beyond came as you were rebuilding it. So talk about that a little bit. Well, you know, uh, my cabin took a while to build. I think Thoreau was in his 20s when he built his. And he influenced me, like I say, by starting to keep journals. I, I started to write, but it took me a while until my 50th birthday to build my own writing shack. And I, I built it after a night of celebrating and had a mild headache and slammed it together. And it lasted for a few years. And then Hurricane Florence took it out. It basically floated off its foundation and it had eight feet of water. And it. it was a pretty dramatic example of climate change in my own backyard. So the publicity material for the book says, when the pandemic struck, David Gessner turned to Thoreau. The bizarre thing is it was really before the pandemic struck. It was in January before, well, I guess it had been striking overseas, um, that I started to rebuild my writing shack that had been destroyed in Florence. Weirdly, I was reading a biography of Thoreau by Laura Walls, I built an osprey platform for returning birds in the spring. So I say in the book, it was like I was cheating for a test that I didn't know I was going to have to take. And when the pandemic hit, I was pretty well positioned to shelter in place. I was the chair at the time, I'm, thank God I'm not anymore, but I was the chair of our creative writing department. And I was going in every day and I said, my life was like playing a game of space invaders on email and the phone, I would be shooting down incoming mail and incoming phone calls and dealing with crises. And suddenly that went away for a little while. I ended up having to come back in, but it went away for a while. And I was at home and doing what a lot of us did and what you described, which was starting to study the bird life in my backyard. I mean, one of the ironies was this time of supposed isolation was also a time of migration. And you saw the, the birds coming through the clapper rails in my backyard, the black skimmers, these birds out on Wrightsville Beach near my house. And so I started to kind of re-up my study of what Thoreau called phenology or what Thoreau studied. He, I don't think he used that actual word. It came along later, which is the phenomenon of the year as the year goes around. When things bud, uh, when migrations come through, kind of just following the year. And I think that's a study a lot of us took to during the pandemic. Here's a clip from the 2006 Walden audiobook about Thoreau's descriptions of nature, read by Gord McKenzie. Though it is now dark, the wind still blows and roars in the wood. The waves still dash, and some creatures lull the rest with their notes. The repose is never complete. The wildest animals do not repose. But seek their prey now, the fox and skunk and rabbit. Now roam the fields and woods without fear. They are nature's watchmen. You know, you really get a 
it's kind of thrilling, actually, to hear him uh, read how closely he was watching the nature outside his door. And as you said, as you were doing. And guess what? A lot of us who don't normally do that, <laughs> who are not in the writing shack or writing right, down right. in a journal, we started to pay attention. And it was really quite fascinating to see how many people took to the outside as a response to having been forced inside. Now, he, again, put himself inside. But we didn't have that choice in many instances. That was amazing to see. Yeah, and uh, one of the interesting things for me teaching graduate students is how many of them kind of converted to becoming birders, which I'd never seen before. Suddenly people were outside watching birds. And of course we were also watching videos of the rewilding that was going on everywhere. Um, you know, Suddenly villagers in India could see the Himalayas and um, one of my favorite videos was the two mountain lions prowling down the middle of Boulder on like one of the main streets during a snowstorm. So there was kind of this sense early on, I think, of obvious fear and desperation, but also of the possibility of rewilding on a global scale, but also on a personal scale, where a lot of us were, were starting to take note of things. And one of the fascinating things about Thoreau that I thought of while listening to that was his notations, his journals, his millions of words he put in the journals are now being used by climate scientists to note how things have changed in Concord, Massachusetts and when things flower now compared to when they flowered in the mid 1800s. So there was a, both a poetic and scientific element to it. And it was so observational. I mean, some people find the journals dull. Some people find Walden dull. And I, to those people, I say uh, two simple words, skip around. <laughs> okay. read, read by inclination, read where it interests you. Uh, you know, a lot for a lot of us, Walden was forced on us in high school. And we're like, oh, my God, this is a Sunday school sermon. But there are little secrets in there if you skip around and find them on your own. Well, one of the things that he was making plain in all of his journals over and over again is man's impact on the environment, which is why people think of him as the original environmentalist. And of course, we've just, we're in a moment where the UN has come out with its latest climate report and said, humans are to blame, period. Period, yeah. That's it. And, <laughs> and I just got back from traveling in the West. Um, strangely, this was published by a Western publisher, and I did a lot of my readings, not in New England, but out West. And everywhere I went was, it was like a Looking at the mountains was looking at like looking at an undeveloped Polaroid of them. Everything was foggy and hazy and smoky. And when I crossed the Colorado River, it was 107 that day. And I drove on, I saw a flash flood in Utah and I drove to Paradise, California. And it really was like being in a new world. Like we'd, we'd become those predictions that Bill McKibben made 30 years ago in End of Nature. Um, and so, I think that I used to rankle at being called a nature writer. It seemed kind of belittling in a way to me. And now I embrace it because nature writing is about making connections between things and never have we needed to make those connections more and never have we needed to understand that the natural world, the world, the globe, the place we are is the stage on which all our other dramas take place. And without the stage, uh, we have nothing. And this is the moment, it seems to me, where a lot of people, uh, what they do, I don't know, but a lot of people are finally opening their eyes to the sheer drama of being in a new world. 
Now, one of the philosophies that Thoreau is known for is his emphasis on really making do with just what you need, like being serious about, getting serious about what is extraneous just because you could have it and what you really need. Now, he lived, obviously, in a hut, so he wasn't using much, but his famous quote is, simplicity, simplicity, simplicity. I say, let your affairs be as two or three and not a hundred or a thousand. A lot of people during this time of being inside discovered that or rediscovered that and uh, sat with that as a as a truth in their lives. And you said the same thing. Yeah. And I think it connects to what I was just saying about about climate, too. There's this big kind of um, argument about whether the changes need to be personal or political. And obviously, they need to be both, as, as we know. But I think the personal, uh, if Thoreau's life teaches us one thing, it's that the personal can reflect the political And that idea of simplicity, of doing with less, not greedily looking for more, is an idea that, uh, you know, if we're to survive, needs to come to to front and center, I think. Um, One of my favorite quotes that I use in the book is by, not by Thoreau, but by my old mentor, Reg Sonner, Colorado writer who died this year. And he says, we humans are an elsewhere. And I think that's really... You know, the human mind, whether it was trained by evolution or our iPhones, I don't know, is always jumping to where it isn't. And it takes discipline to not jump to where you're not, to not be hungry for more in that moment, but to see if you can do with less. And I point to watching Great Blue Herons fish and waiting, 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 and then striking and thinking that's what patience is. It isn't some groovy, easy thing. It's a discipline you have to work at, and it takes self-restraint. And if nothing else, Thoreau is a master of self-restraint. Mm. Yeah. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and I'm speaking with author David Gessner about his latest book, Quiet Desperation, Savage Delight, Sheltering with Thoreau in the Age of Crisis. Um, Now, we know the crisis was the pandemic, but there were some other crises going on as well that you deal with in your book. One, the racial reckoning in just such a weird time. We're already in crisis and inside. People actually, you know, risk their health going out to protest what they saw were the murderous inequities after George Floyd's murder. And I was interested in your talking about the Thoreauvian idea of going inward and outward. So people were inside grappling with many of the the issues that we've talked about, as you were. But there was also an outside part of it. Actually, Thoreau did it himself. He wasn't in that hut the whole time. Right. So why don't you talk about why that was so relevant to you and something you wanted to point out in this book? Well, to start with, you you said that I hadn't planned on doing this book, and I really hadn't. And I wrote an essay early on, and it was more focused on doing with less and and um, and kind of nature and then as I started to see the book grow, um, it turned in the same direction of the world in May and June toward the more political. And of course, Thoreau's a complicated figure there. A lot of people say, oh, he took his laundry home to mom on Sunday. He, he wasn't really in wilderness, to which I think he would reply, I never said I was. This was an experiment in living uh, according to your ideals. But those ideals were not just private, they were public. And his famous night in jail in Concord came about because he was objecting to the Mexican War and to slavery. And 
out of that night grew the essay that's known as civil disobedience. And civil, civil disobedience is basically saying, you know, the place in an unjust time, the place for a just man is jail. And basically saying, uh, let's put our money where our mouths are. And he did that to a degree that casual readers don't really know, including uh, supporting John Brown after the rebellion and with fiery speeches. And, and uh, really one of the things I say that, that you point out is he went into the woods to think and create this gift and he brought the gift back to the world. And if you don't mind, I can read a, a short passage about that. Sure. This takes place when my, my daughter is downtown during one of the George Floyd marches, specifically organized by high school kids. She was 17 at the time. While the kids chanted and marched and listened to speeches, I lurked on the other side of the street. I felt like a secret service agent, though to others I might have looked like someone a secret service agent should be watching out for, long-haired, bearded, wearing a mask, eyes scanning the crowd. At one point, a character even more suspicious than me showed up, a scraggly, scowly-faced man who rode an ancient ram-horned 10-speed bike through the bark bank parking lot across the street from City Hall. The man paused on the bike and began to scream, shut up, over and over at the kids. I moved closer to him, and so did one of the cops stationed near the rally. You're going to mace me, the man yelled. I got a gun. Luckily, he didn't. And after the cop approached and had talked to him for a while, he petulantly rode away. I backed off but stayed vigilant. Hadley, my daughter, made it safely through the afternoon. And the most anyone in her group suffered was some minor heat stroke. Compared to those being shot with rubber bullets or knocked to the ground by cops, they suffered little. And compared to the victims like George Floyd, who had spurred the protests, they suffered not at all. But there was a risk. There is always a risk. That is the math of protest. What are we willing to give up to try and affect the change we want? Are we willing to sacrifice our private pleasure for the public good? Are we willing to interrupt our oh-so-precious lives? It is dangerous business leaving the woods behind. It is scary out on the streets. Of course, it is more complicated than that. In at least one case, the ideas that inspire those on the streets were born in the woods. I'll let Martin Luther King have the last word. He wrote, I became convinced that non-cooperation with evil is as much a moral obligation as is cooperation with good. No other person has been more eloquent and passionate in getting this idea across than Henry David Thoreau. As a result of his writings and personal witness, we are the heirs of a legacy of creative protests. The teachings of Thoreau came alive in our civil rights movement. Indeed, they are more alive than ever before. Whether expressed in a sit-in at lunch counters, a freedom ride into Mississippi, a peaceful protest in Georgia, a bus boycott in Montgomery, Alabama. These are outgrowths of Thoreau's insistence that evil must be resisted and that no moral man can patiently adjust to injustice. That's my guest, David Gessner, reading from his latest book, Quiet Desperation, Savage Delight, Sheltering with Thoreau in the Age of Crisis. So what's the big takeaway for you and for the rest of us in terms of Thoreau's comment to us or maybe direction to us about living in an age of crisis? 
to me, it's to think about one's life. It's the oldest lesson, right? Is the journals were him working out his ideas to live thoughtfully, to read deeply, to look outward toward the natural world. Um, I've been writing for 12 books about the fact that our anthropocentric way of looking at the world is, uh, is the path to disaster. And a lot of those lessons were ones that he originally gave me, that there's a biocentric world, that the world, the animals in it, the plants in it, the birds we watch, uh, it all is larger than us, a lesson that uh, maybe we'll never learn. I mean, I will say that I don't want to end on a dark note, but my trip around the West right before this was really an eye-opener where I thought, I believe in these things. I believe we can go in that direction. My faith that we will is wavering a little bit. And uh, I feel it, to some degree, we're in kind of a dark prediction of what Thoreau warned about, which was remember that you're an animal too, that your wildness is, is, is one of your strengths and that you um, have to have an essential humility uh, a man is not, a human being is not more than other creatures on the planet. And to me, that's, that's really what I took away from him. I also think that to relate back to the Martin Luther King quote, that by going inside, we can go thoughtfully outside. And I end the book with Jamie Raskin at the impeachment hearings, where he did just that and, and just impressed me to no end with, with what he did, quoting Thomas Paine and and kind of reaching inside during a time of personal tragedy for him, he just lost his son, and speaking to all of us in an intelligent, elevated way. I also need to add on that note that my neighbor, after the election, brought a six-pack of IPA over and plopped it on my doorstep the next morning and wrote a note that said, to the victor go the spoils, reaching out from across the great divide. So not everyone is involved in the great schism that seems to be ripping apart our, our country. How do we, on a regular basis, go inward and outward, you know, just practically? Yeah, I would say the simplest thing to do would be do what a lot of people did during the pandemic, which is walk. Walk thoughtfully. And by that, I mean, Thoreau said, if you're in the woods and you're thinking town thoughts, you're not in the woods. When you're in the woods, think woods thoughts. And what he basically meant is don't go into the woods with your phone and think about your things to do list and what's going on tomorrow. I mean, you can do that a little bit, but try to actually look outside yourself. In a way, that's a small example of the larger lesson I was just talking about, the idea of looking outward and seeing beyond the self. Hmm. So from 1845, a young man's thoughts to 2021. Another young man's <laughs> thoughts. Uh, thank you, David Gessner, for joining me. Thank you, Callie. I, I really appreciate you having me on. David Gessner is the author of 12 books and a professor at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington. His latest book is Quiet Desperation, Savage Delight, Sheltering with Thoreau in the Age of Crisis. That's it for this week's edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. We're on the web at wgbh.org news under the radar with Callie Crossley and available for download wherever you get your podcasts. Under the Radar with Callie Crossley is a production of GBH, produced by Hannah Ubeli and engineered by Dave Goodman. Iftisan El Maliki is our intern. Our theme music is Fish and Chips by We Are Two Saxies, Grace Kelly and Leo P. 
See you here at 6 p.m. next Sunday. I'm Callie Crossley. Thanks for listening.